You're listening to Hidden History, and I'm your host, Ellis Tucci. Hidden History is an audio project of Bulletin Technologies, LLC. To find out how you can fly for a fraction of the cost of commercial, visit bulletinflights.com. Pause for a second and take a look around you. Go on. I'll wait. Was that long enough? Odds are you're surrounded by a vast spectrum of colors. Dozens of different types of red, green, blue, yellow, brown, white, orange, black, and all those weird shapes that come in that 64-count Crayola box with the built-in sharpener. You know the one. Well, if it hadn't been for a completely accidental discovery over 150 years ago, not only would everything around us be decidedly less vibrant, but one shade would be absent almost completely. Purple. Purple dye was once worth more than its weight in gold, and was considered reserved for regents and emperors. So how did we get from there to here? It's all thanks to one man, William Perkin, and his quest to synthesize a cure for malaria. You're listening to Hidden History. This is Episode 4, The Color Purple. The outside isn't fancy, but back of these unpretentious premises at Mossman, Sydney, is what used to be a stable and is now a studio. And inside, aren't they beautiful fabrics? If only we had some coupons left. Miss Nancy McKenzie draws the designs and blocks them in stencil fashion on a silk screen. Then these screens are placed on the plain cotton material and Miss McKenzie and Mrs. Outlaw, her partner on the right, spread the dye through the silk using rubber squeegees. Mrs. Outlaw, by the way, is an OBE. This is only one design. They have created more than a hundred. Next step is to fix the colors by putting the material through an acid bath. No, it isn't washing day. Just Miss McKenzie artistically wielding the copper sticks in a bath of boiling acid. After that is aired and later laundered. Designs of brilliant and beautiful variety which are bringing overseas fame to these two talented people and a new appreciation abroad of Australian Aboriginal motives and creative art. Many of the patterns are distinctively Australian, all hand-printed. No machine shop standardization here. And will the colours run, Miss Mackenzie, Mrs Outlaw? Not from this stable, they won't. What you just heard was Pathé archival newsreel footage from between 1940 and 1945, the subject of which is a small Australian fabric dyeing factory. And although the footage is in black and white, the elaborately patterned cloth that the factory produced most certainly wasn't. And although we aren't told, we can assume from the time period that they used some variation of the modern petroleum-based synthetic dyes that are used today. But before the advent of synthetic dye, things were colored naturally, be it from roots, bark, leaves, berries, or even wood and fungus. The art of textile dyeing can be traced all the way back to the Neolithic period, which began around 15,200 BC and ended between 4,500 and 2,000 BC. Dyes like indigo, glastum, and saffron, which produced relatively common colors, were eventually raised on commercial farms and grew to become important commodities for ancient and medieval trading. 
But one dye in particular stands out, not only for its high quality as a colorfast, a non-fading dye, but also due to the immense expense associated with producing it. Tyrian purple. Coming from the ancient Phoenician city of Tyre in modern-day Lebanon, Tyrian purple was produced by crushing the shells, or, as gross as it sounds, milking the secretions of tens of thousands of the predatory sea snail Bolinus brundaris, which provided a renewable option. Milking the snails, I really would like to find a better way to say that, was done by simply poking them and harvesting the dye that they produced as a natural defense mechanism. However, both options were labor-intensive and startlingly inefficient. David Jacoby states in his book Silk Economics and Cross-Cultural Artistic Interaction, Byzantium, the Muslim World, and the Christian West, that 12,000 of the snails would produce only 1.4 grams of pure dye, which was only enough to color the trim of a single garment. Tyrian purple was used by the Phoenicians since about 1570 BC. Its value was bolstered by the fact that it did not fade with continued exposure to sunlight, but rather became brighter and more vibrant. The influence of the dye was so extensive that Phoenicia literally means the land of purple. The dye itself was worth more than its weight in gold, meaning that purple became a status symbol. The imperial court of Byzantium subsidized the production of the stuff, and as a result, its use was reserved only for the dyeing of imperial silks. Byzantine production of dye from Bolinus Brandaris came to a sudden halt during the sack of Constantinople during the Fourth Crusades in 1204 AD. And after that, no emperor or ruler of a Byzantine territory could raise the necessary funds to pursue the production of Tyrian purple. As a result, purple dye would remain incredibly expensive and widely inaccessible for over 600 years. That is, until an 18-year-old Englishman, William Perkin, would incorrectly attempt to synthesize quinine, a treatment for malaria. William Henry Perkin, who would later be knighted for his contributions to science and industry, was born on March 12, 1838, in London's East End, the youngest of seven children. At 14, he attended the City of London School, where he was persuaded by one of his instructors, Thomas Hall, to pursue a career in the relatively primitive field of chemistry. And so the very next year, at 15, he matriculated into London's Royal College of Chemistry and was taught under August Wilhelm van Hoffmann, as one of his assistants, Hoffman assigned the 15-year-old Perkin to pursue the total synthesis of quinine, an extremely expensive natural substance with unnatural demand that was used to treat malaria. His accidental discovery occurred in the spring of 1856, when, during a series of experiments in his humble home laboratory, Perkin oxidized, or decreased, the amount of electrons in an organic compound called aniline, using an inorganic chemical reagent called potassium dichromate. When the impurities in the potassium dichromate reacted with the aniline, the result was a black solid. Perkin thought that his experiment had failed, so he proceeded to clean the flask with alcohol, and as a result, was left with an intense purple color. 
Recognizing the potential of applications for his discovery, he decided to continue work with his brother Thomas and his friend Arthur Church in total secret, as it wasn't part of his research for Hoffman. Eventually, the three became confident of its practical application as a die, and in August 1856, William Perkin filed for a patent. He was only 18. So Mauvine, the world's first synthetic dye, was born, and it couldn't have been at a better time. England was in the midst of an industrial revolution, and after he solved a number of problems involved with the launch of Mauvine, including manufacturing it cheaply and creating a binding process for cotton, the dye saw massive commercial success and Perkin became extremely rich. He continued to experiment in organic chemistry and would go on to discover even more aniline dyes, such as Britannia Violet and Perkins Green. It was said that the color of the Grand Union Canal in London would change color from week to week depending on what was being manufactured in Perkins' dye works. Eventually, in the 1890s, chemical concerns from the German Empire held a near monopoly on the production of synthetic dye, causing Perkin to leave the chemical industry and retire. He was knighted in 1906, and a year later would die from pneumonia and complications from a burst appendix. The legacy of William Henry Perkin lives on in all that is colorful. So, at the end of this week's episode, I'm going to ask you to once again... Take a look around you, at all the vibrant, rich colors that are only here because of one man and a mistake. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History, signing off.